We are picking our way through this time of the year and the events that come up in this time of year for us to try to hopefully find our ways back to a full consolation, a full restoration of the Jewish people. And this time, since we're in already the um, the proximity to the fast days of Shiva Sabi Tammuz and Tisha B'Av, I wanted to point out one of what I think the Gemara points out as a fatal flaw, and Yumiel already points out as well, as one of the the, the fatal flaws I already said, but one of the uh, bedeviling factors, the weaknesses that plague the Jewish people, I think not only in the times of the Nevi'im, of the prophets, and of the Gemara. So as we see them, I think it'll become clear how it applies in our times as well. So in Yirmiyahu, in chapter 7, verse 3, Yirmiyahu quotes Hashem, Hashem Yisrael, Heitivu Malechem, If you only improve your ways and your paths, Hashem still is able to promise that I will make your residence here more permanent. I'll, I'll, I'll reside you here. But then Hashem says, And sheker is a word that I think appears in Yirmiyahu more than in most books of Tanakh. And it's a reminder that especially in times of trouble, at times of destruction, the truth becomes an issue of its own. And Hashem is telling them, don't listen to the Divrei HaSheker. There's words of falsehood out there. And then Hashem quotes what the words are. The words of Sheker are, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem Hima. That it is the Heichal, the sanctuary of God, and it's repeated two times after the first time. So it's three, it comes three times in the verse that it's the sanctuary of God. Don't believe that, is what Hashem is saying. So what does that mean, don't believe that? What is it that they're believing? So the Radak there says, these are the words of falsehood. That the false prophets say to them. And I think it's in my discussion today, I think it's important to think about the idea of false prophets because I think we can easily fool ourselves that false prophets are saying these crazy things and people just went after them. False prophets were saying things that were easy and that were good enough to convince the people around them, not just that they wanted to follow it, but that that's what God wanted. These were Nevi'eya Sheker, at least for the Rambam. To be a Navi, you have to be a certain kind of a person. And even according to the other points of view, you have to be somebody who managed to produce impressive tricks or miracles or something that convinced people you could be a prophet. So you have the Nevi'eya Sheker, the false prophets, Hamat Imotam, the Radakas, who fools them and leads them astray. Right? And they and they say to them, Hashem would never destroy the Beit HaMikdash because of our sins, because of these sins. Hashem would never destroy this city because of these sins. So the Radak is saying that the Nevi'eh HaSheker, and I want to say, I think Nevi'eh HaSheker, false prophets, always tell us what we want to hear. And true prophets much more rarely tell us what we want to hear. Because until we live in a redeemed world, true prophets come to tell us the things that we need to hear that we're not yet hearing. So here... The false prophets are saying, you don't have to listen to Yirmiyahu. You don't have to thoroughly change your ways. Right? Yirmiyahu is calling for a, a real structural and societal overhaul. Imagine if a prophet came today and said, listen, the things that you think of as being the best parts of your service of God, they're a mistake. You shouldn't be doing them nearly as much as you're doing them. So today, whatever that could be, right? You, you think of the examples. If I get the examples, it'll be political. But, uh, but, but you know... Uh, you're learning too much Torah. Imagine if a prophet said that. I'm not saying they would. 
But imagine a prophet came and said, you're learning too much, Torah. you're spending more time, I don't know, feeding the, 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 the poor or, or tending to the sick. So some people like that, they already believe that, so they would be happy about it. But most people would say, what are you talking about? That's what's going on here. Maybe that example isn't the greatest example, but that's what's going on here. Yumiyo is saying to them, you're listening to your false prophets who are telling you that there's no way that Hashem would destroy the Beit HaMikdash, right? And Radak says, and why did he mention the Heichal Hashem three times? He, so the Radak says there are three parts to the Beit HaMikdash. There's the inner room, the Kodesh Kodashim, there's the Heichal, the outer room, and there's the Ulam. Which would suggest that Yumiyo is telling them, your false prophets telling them that each one of those rooms is so sanctified, there's no way God will ever, ever let it get be destroyed. The Redak quotes, quotes his father, who's also a known biblical commentator, and his father um, said, I got that wrong, I was thinking about somebody else, I'm sorry. Father said, Ki pasuk Eretz, Eretz, Eretz. Later in Yermio, Yermio calls out to the land of Israel, says, Eretz, 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 and he's saying that that's a response to what they're saying here. They're saying... Hey, Chalashem, hey, Chalashem, it's so important. The building, the structure of the Beit HaMikdash is so sacrosanct, so untouchable. And and I want you to know, Hashem is saying to them, it's like the land of Israel. I'll exile you from the land. I'll destroy the Beit HaMikdash. I'll do all those things. The Al-Sheikh, who's a later commentator, is a 16th century, later, late 16th, early 17th century commentator, who I don't often use. I think I came across this one here and I thought it was interesting. He takes a more, uh, even more metaphysical view, and that would it would then explain why the Jews. Now, I'm not saying the Jews really believe this, but the Al Sheikh has his own perspective about what the Jews of the times of Scripture were thinking and how they approached approached the world. And I don't know that I historically believe that's what was going on, but I think the the thing he's telling us has much more contemporary relevance. He says they said to themselves, "They call Hashem, call Hashem." So I'll quote him, Klomar, that is to say, There's no way that Hashem would destroy the Beit HaMikdash. Why? So Hashem said, so the Navi says, You shouldn't think that. You shouldn't think that Hashem needs this house. When Hashem said he was going to reside in a house, Hashem doesn't care about the house. Hashem cares about people. And really the the, the preference would have been, for Hashem to reside with people, with the righteous people, and, and not to worry about this thing, right? That's not a, a real, the, the, the house is sort of ancillary to the real goal. That's the first step that he says. The people mistake, meaning people decide the Beit HaMikdash the way it's supposed to be. And the al say, we'll see the Meshachachma many years later, had a similar idea, but the al is saying, you're missing the point, right? People don't, it, it wasn't about, getting the house to have the presence of God. It was about getting people to be aware of the presence of God. So you're all focused on the house, but you're missing, you're, you're, you're losing sight of what the whole goal of it was. As another possibility, he says, they said, what they meant was, there is a tradition, there's a house, as it were, there's a Beit HaMikdash in the heavens that parallels the Beit HaMikdash on the earth. Whatever that word, word means, either physically or metaphysically. The key point for the Al-Sheikh is the people decided that those two, they didn't decide. It, the tradition is that those two are exactly parallel to each other. The people decided there's no way that God would destroy the house in the heavens. So then obviously God would never destroy the house below either because they're right next to each other. If the house below got destroyed, there would be a problem 
maybe the house in the heavens would not get destroyed, but it certainly wouldn't be as strong or as uh, productive or whatever the right word would be for it. And they said, so therefore there's no way to imagine that God would ever let the house be destroyed. And Hashem says, you're trusting falsehoods because, now the Alshach's answer is because you're mistaken as to how connected these two are. They're only connected when there's righteousness on the earth and there's it's connected. So the Alshach sort of gives an answer that says they made a mistake about their fundamental metaphysical assumption, which may be true. My The point that I would take with it, though, is that people, I think this is an example, see others, it's an example of where people decide they know who God is and what God is, and they decide it even in the face of well-established statements by God of who God is and what God is. So the verses say, the Radak says that they got the impression that it's all about the house, but it's not about the house, it's about the people, right? And they're following their Nevi'eh HaShekah, they're following their false prophets. We're going to tell them there's no way Hashem would ever, would ever do this. It's a, it's a phrase that I used to notice, I've noticed it less recently, but I used to notice every time somebody said it, people used to say to me, you know, the God I believe in would never, whatever it is, which is remarkable. It's remarkable people are able to say those words. What they mean is, I've decided what God is, and the God, as I've parametered God, that's the story, and it can't be anything else. And that's what's going on here to a certain extent. The Nevi'eh Shekhar are telling the people something they want to hear, which is that the Beit HaMikdash will never get destroyed, and they believe that. And Yermio is trying to make them aware that they've, that there's a key piece of the puzzle that's missing. Similarly, the Meshachachma in Shemot points out another fundamental flaw in their view of the Beit HaMikdash. They're saying, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem, Heichal Hashem Hema. They're saying, look how key the Beit HaMikdash is, and therefore God would never let it be destroyed. The Meshachachma points out that there's a strong reason to believe that the Beit HaMikdash was a fallback plan, right? The Ramban thinks that's true. The Ramban thinks that it was, I'm sorry, Rashi thinks that the Mishkan in the desert was a fallback plan after the sin of the golden calf to give them a place to atone for it. The Ramban doesn't quite think that. He thinks something else. We don't have to talk about that now. But the Meshachachma picks up on another issue. He points out that earlier in Shemot, before a Mishkan was built, before a golden calf occurred, there's a verse that's quoted in Pirkei Avot a few times that says that wherever, now Askiret Shemi could have meant wherever I, God, mentioned my name, but at least in Pirkei Avot it's assumed to mean wherever a Jew, wherever somebody mentions God's name, then God will be there. So in Pirkei Avot it comes up in the context of saying that even if one person is learning alone, that that person gets a reward for it, because of this verse, wherever my name gets mentioned, I'll come and bless you. But the Meshachachma takes it much more broadly than that. The Meshachachma says what Hashem meant, it was supposed to be the ideal was, that the divine presence in the world would have been much more free-floating than it eventually became. And it would have been that any time a Jew was learning Torah, doing good things and all those kinds of things, the Shekhinah would come join that person without a Mishkan, without a building needing to be doing it, right? The only value of the Mishkan would have been, it would be a place to do the service. The sacrificial service has a value, has a place in the world of Judaism. 
That's what we would need a building for. But in terms of Ashra'at Ashkina, in terms of the divine presence being in the world, that wouldn't have been a function. That wouldn't have been needed. That wouldn't have needed the Beit HaMikdash in particular. That was the original plan. Because the Jewish people, as the Meshach says, would have been Ma'on Lashemit Barach. They would have been the, the, so the Ma'on is like the resting place. They would have been the vehicle for the divine presence to enter the world. And then the Meshach throws in the words of our verse that we've been talking about, Hechal Hashem They themselves would have been the sanctuary of God. So as a first step, we're going to move our way, we're going to move to the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash in a second. But before we got there, while we were talking about the destruction of the first Beit HaMikdash, we have this verse in Yirmiyahu, where Yirmiyahu is trying his best, and sadly for him, he never succeeds, trying his best to get the Jewish people to realize that there is, and it's a sad thing because it would be one thing if the Nabi is always telling you, listen, it's all going bad, there's nothing you can do about it, and it's terrible, and that's life, and too bad. So then you can imagine, you could say people would get frustrated with that and they would say, why am I going to pay attention to this? What am I going to do about it? This guy is always negative. He's always got something to say bad about us. And they would lose uh, they would lose hope, right? They would despair of ever, ever being able to be better. I hear that. But here and other places, Yemiel is in fact not saying that. Yemiel is saying, I have the key to averting the disaster that I'm predicting, right? He's not saying I'm predicting a disaster and it's just the end of it. He's saying, I can help you avert it, and they're not willing to listen. And in this instance of that, he's saying, you're going to have to change your ways significantly. So that's always a challenge. People do not like to change. And he says, one way you have to change is that you're listening to the false prophets who are assuring you that it's Heichal Hashem. Step one is, the Radak said, they're assuring you that Hashem would never destroy the building, right? Because the building matters so much. That's already a mistake. Step two, the al says, it's not even the building that was supposed to be, and this is similar to the Meshachachma that we just read, it's not even the building that's supposed to be the place where Hashem rests, it's the righteous people, right? That's another possibility. And then the third thing, that the Alshach said, is people decide to themselves that since there's a Beit Mikdash Shelmala, there's a celestial Beit Mikdash temple, and there's a earthly one, and they are right, uh, they are uh, right opposite each other, they're right connected to each other, there's no way Hashem would damage the celestial one by hurting the uh, earthly one. Just a fundamental error in that they assume they know the way God works better than the prophet of God who's telling them otherwise. So that's in the first Beit HaMikdash. And that's a, a, a fundamental error that I think that continues today. The idea that we are sure we know what God wants and we say it in the face of well-established uh, Sources telling us otherwise. One kind of overconfidence that I hope we begin to think about and to learn from and not to uh, and not to continue that that error. When we turn to the Gemara that talks about the destruction of the second Beit HaMikdash, I think we see some of that same error repeated, which I always find more tragic than just the tragedy of destruction, meaning that just the fact that Beit HaMikdash got destroyed is always a tragedy. But were it to be true, and there are other Gemaras that think it's not true, but were it to be true that many of the exact same factors were at play, that's almost uh, worse because it means we didn't manage to learn the lesson from the first time. And I think that happens too. So not it's not exactly the same. As somebody said, I think maybe they say it's Mark Twain who said it, right? History doesn't repeat, it rhymes. Whoever said that. So here we're going to see some of that rhyme of history. 
So in Gittin and Vava Midbet, 56b, the Gemara is talking about, these are the Gemara that we can learn on Tisha B'Av, so some people know them more than other Gemara own, right? So the Gemara is talking about the destruction of the Sikha Beit HaMikdash, and the Jews ran afoul of the Roman Emperor, so Shadri Ilavayu Lesbastianus Kesar, this as Vespasian comes and leads the attack on Jerusalem, Tsar Allah Tlat Shani, and Vespasian set siege to Jerusalem for three years. The Gemara tells this story now. Havu There were three very wealthy people in Jerusalem at the time. Nagdimon ben Gurion. Nagdimon ben Gurion is an important, well-known, he's the guy with the cisterns, the stories about him, about the, the ways that he, did, uh, that he did charity, and that Hashem helped him recover his money. There's Ben Kalba Savua, who's the father-in-law of Rabbi Akiva. And there's Ben Tzitzis Akesas, another very wealthy man who respects mitzvot. Important people. Now they, when the siege starts, Nagdimon Ben Gurion, first the Gemara tells us about how important they are. Nagdimon Ben Gurion, that the son, this is the sister story, he had once, uh, he was trying to get water for Ole, uh, for the people who were going to come to Jerusalem for holidays. So he took the water from a Roman general and he said, I'll repay it to you. And he was hoping it would rain by then. I'll repay it to you by a certain date. We're also going to have to use some huge amount of money that it seems like would have bankrupted him. So the day that it was supposed to come back, this day that he had to either get the water, it hadn't rained yet, it hadn't rained yet. So finally, late in the day, he prays to God, which is interesting because he doesn't pray till late in the day. He's sort of expecting or hoping God will help him. He prays late in the day, the rain comes. The Roman says to him, it was too late. The time, the day had already ended. Now I've got the water and you have to pay me. So Nagdimon prays again and the sun shows up on his back. That's Nagdalo Kamaba He's called that, which the words mean the son of a, a satiated dog. He says, whoever comes to his home uh, hungry like a dog, leave sated. And then says, because he would walk around with his tzitzis uh, on pillows to show honor for the mitzvahs. So these three wealthy men, one says, I'm going to give you wheat and, 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 and barley, wheat and barley. The other says, I'll give you uh, wine and salt and oil. The other one says, I'll give you wood, right? So they've got the Gemara claims. I'm not talking about the history. I'm talking about the Gemara's presentation of the issue. They've got provisions for 21 years. Now the Gemara says, Havu behu hanahu biryoni. There were certain pieces of biryoni like People like fighting, they, they're, they're the, 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 the more physical element of the thing, and they thought well, they should fight. They didn't want to just last out the siege. The older people of the time, the rabbis, but the, the calmer people, they want to try to make peace with the Romans. Loshavkim, the Bione, the youth, and the, the ones who were excited about military victory, they said not. Amrul Kurava. They said, no, we should go to war, which is crazy. But Amrul Rabbana Lumistayamilti says you're not gonna win. So interestingly, nobody in this particular conversation seems able to take the matters into their own hands. Meaning if the rabbis thought that they should make peace, you can imagine sending out a delegation of rabbis. If the Bayoni thought you should make war, you can imagine they're just making a raid, making war. So apparently they still had some sense that they had to work together. And that it was unacceptable to act unilaterally, which I think is a political statement that has relevance in our times as well. But then, here's the piece that I think is, is, is tragic and shows a similar error to what we saw back in the first temple time. Kamu 
they burned the storehouses of wheat and barley and there was a famine. Now, why would you burn your storehouses? So the answer is they're trying to force the issue. Right? The Biryoni have decided that they're right and you can't, it's wrong to wait out the seas. It's wrong to try to make peace. This is what you need to do. You can feel like you're right, but now when you burn your bridges, and that's what they're doing, right? That's the whole idea of that phrase of burning the bridges is that you burn the bridges to make sure the people fight well. And that's what they're trying to do here. But you see the error is that they weren't going to go fight and now they just have a famine. So burning bridges is a delicate thing to do because you have to be completely confident that your only option is jumping into the fight. So the Chidushia Griz, which is the uncle of Rabbi Salavechik, Rabbi Joseph B. Salavechik, Rabbi Velvel Yitzchak Ze'ev Salavechik, he is talking about a verse in Eich, uh, and I'm sorry, there's a verse in Yeshayahu. A verse in Yeshayahu, which is also quoted in these Gemars, it says, the story in, in, in the story in Gittin is about uh, a young man who's in captivity and uh, and uh, Rabbi Shmuel Rabbi Yeshua ben Kanania. there's a story in the Gemara in Gittin that Yeshua ben Kanania goes to Rome and he hears a story about a young man who is in captivity and who is very good looking it's interesting in the Gemara that they care about his looks, but that's what the story is. And so the story in the Gemara, he goes and he quotes a verse from Yeshayahu. And the verse is, Who has given the Jewish people over to people who take them into captivity? And the child calls out and says, He finishes the verse, which is, that it's Hashem to whom we have sinned, and he finishes the verse, that we refuse to go in Hashem's ways, and things like that. So the Grizz says, and, and I'm sorry, Rishu ben Kananya says, I know this kid is going to be a great Torah teacher among the Jewish people. And therefore he redeemed him for more money than, than usually was allowed. And that's a question halacha as to when we're allowed to redeem people for more money. But he says, I know this kid is going to be a great Torah scholar. And so he saved him for a lot of money. And the kid turned into Rabbi Shmuel ben Elish, who became, in fact, an important Torah scholar, and we know important stories about him and whatever it is. But the Grizz says, I understand what's so great about the kid. All he did was he knew a Pasuk in Yeshayahu, but remember that the educational system at that time was such that that's the way you taught kids. You taught them Pasukim and they learned Pasukim by art. So what's so great, right? Rabbi Yisha says the first half of a Pasuk, kid finishes it. So the Grizz says, earlier in that Gemara, we had the story of three wealthy people that I just told you, and the Biryone destroyed the storehouses, right? And so the Rabban at the time wanted to make peace. And there it is, right? And they burned it. So the Grizz says there were people who said, there were some people who said that Jerusalem was destroyed, Jerusalem fell because they didn't go to war. Because if they had only fought the Romans, they would have won. Meaning, and I think this is a key piece, if you're in a political party, if you're one of the Brione, you don't see events as disproving your claim. You'll say, because unfortunately, politics becomes like a religion. It becomes something that it's impossible to change people's minds about. So if it goes wrong, you don't say, oh, I must have been wrong. You say, no, we didn't do it enough. Right? So the Bayona will say, we didn't fight. Right? Or, or if you're not in that party, you'll say, we lost because they burned the food and, and we have the fat and we had the, and we had the famine. And that's why we lost. And that's why things went so terrible. The Grizz says the point is that people tend to find naturalistic explanations for things 
and I would add, and they find the explanation that support their side, not to call their side into the question. So this kid, the point is, it's not that he just quoted the rest of the Pasuk. He understood the cause for the Churban, the cause for the trucks of the Jerusalem, was the fact that people didn't listen to Hashem. So when Rabbi Yoshua saw that already a young child was able to have the proper perspective, that's what he was responding to, and that's what he was saying when he was saying, I know this kid is going to be something great. So I think what you're seeing in both the first Beit HaMikdash and the second Beit HaMikdash, and I bring it up not to talk about them because they're in our past. The value of them is they can maybe, maybe, maybe get us not to repeat their errors, which is the worst tragedy. We can do the exact same error over again. And I'm suggesting that their error was their insistence that they knew how to handle a situation. They were capable of handling a situation on their own. So in the first Beit HaMikdash, they thought they were relying on Hashem, but they were relying on Hashem in a way that they insisted. They were relying on Hashem. They knew better than the Navi, than the Prophet, and they knew Hashem would never destroy the Beit HaMikdash. In the second Beit HaMikdash, they knew either, right, either that you should destroy the storehouses of food because we're going to win the war, or they knew you have to go out and make peace, and it's the lack of storehouses that ended up costing us and bringing us to destruction. And it was only the very rare person who was able to say, no, it's a function of the Jewish people's relationship with God. Rav Moshe Feinstein and Rav Yisrael Meir Lau, so Rav Moshe Feinstein, and Rav Lau, the former chief rabbi of Israel, I hope he has a very, very long line. So they both bring this up in the other context. Rav Moshe Feinstein is finishing a letter to a friend of his in 1980, in Nisan of 1980, just before Pesach, and he says, uh, as I'm giving you a bracha, as he's just, you know, sending off the farewell greetings, I also want to bless you that we see the gulash lema, that we see the final redemption. And he says, you know, now, maybe now is a time when we're going to see our way to the final redemption because things have gotten bad. I don't know what particular, particular political situation he was talking about, but things have gotten so bad that we can now see, the Jewish people can see, that we can only trust in Hashem. And he quotes a Gemara in Sota on Memten Bet, that it's that idea, there's a bright idea there that points out that there are three times, it's about three different things there. So whatever the three things are, it's not important for us. Uh, they happen to be that people are mocking Torah scholars and anybody who believes in God's Torah and, and, uh, and, and other things. So he said in each one case, there's, the Gemara in Sota, the Tosefta in Sota says that the people will finally say, only on whom can we rely? Only on Hashem. And Moshe Feinstein says, when we reach that stage, that's when we'll finally uh, be able to get the, the full redemption. So to Rav Lau, Rav Lau is talking, talking about his tshuva, he's about some idea about, about increasing traffic safety. So he says, you know, anytime that somebody gets killed in a traffic accident, it's a terrible tragedy. So uh, the idea that you can have even a, a small little help to prevent accidents, to save some lives, it's very wonderful, it's very valuable, right? And today it's very terrible, there's so much traffic, whatever it is. But then he says, he says, of course, because it's so bad, we can only rely on Hashem. On the other hand, we have to do our own peace. So that's where things people get stuck. They say, oh, we have to do our own peace, so that's what we have to do. We have to do our own peace. And they forget about the Hashem peace. So part of my goal today in this discussion is to remind us and maybe rejuvenate our feeling and our sense that we always have to walk around 
with the awareness of Hashem being the ultimate source of any salvation we're going to get and relying on that. So I remember back when, and this is a political topic, I'm not being, I don't mean to be political because I don't actually have any deep political views on this issue. But when Obama was pushing the Iran deal, and when I'm at the moments that I'm speaking, Iran seems to be a very great threat, uh, an important threat to the state of Israel. And so the fact that Bibi Benetanyahu was talking about it for 15, 20 years is maybe now proving to be, you know, something relevant. I'm not saying that it isn't, I'm saying it isn't. But I remember back then when it wasn't at all clear where things were going to go. And, it, it, you know, the Americans at least were claiming the Iranians were serious about the deal. And remember, we'll never know because the deal got canceled. And then the Iranians were whatever they're doing. So the people who thought the Iranians were always bad, they'll still think it. Right? And they may be right. I don't know. I'm not being political about this. I'll only point out that it never got its chance because it got scuttled by the president who followed uh, President Obama. But here's the piece that I remember. That when I was talking to people about it, and I had no stake in the game, I only was wondering about the the depth of the hatred for Obama for trying to push the deal, right? The depth of that hatred. I was wondering about it, and I would talk to people about it, and they would say, because it's terrible, because Iran's going to this, Iran's going to that, Iran's going to that. Without, and these were people who were at least as firm as I was, at least observant, at least as caring about God as I was, without everything about God stepping in or not stepping in on the thing. So... That's a challenge that comes up in our times, comes up in other places as well. I had conversations during uh, the corona pandemic. I think there's an interesting question there as to what is the level of saying we have to do as much as we can, but also know that all rests with Hashem. That balance. So here I'm pointing point out that it seems like in the history that Tanakh and the Gemara present of the destructions of the first Beit HaMikdash and the second Beit HaMikdash, one of the key pieces that was pointed out was the overconfidence of people. There's certainty they can rely on their own understanding of the world, their own attempts to make the world better, and they can be sure they can bring protection and or salvation. In the first Beit HaMikdash, they were too confident that Hashem would never destroy it. In the second Beit HaMikdash, they were so confident they destroyed their stores of food that could have prevented the famine, and who knows what could happen. And then even after it all, at least according to the, the, the grid, according to Zev Salavechik, even after all that went wrong, only very few of them, only the Rabbi Shmuel ben Elishas of the world, saw that what had actually happened. It was our lack of a relationship with Hashem and saw beyond the immediate causes. So it's my hope that as we try to move from redemption to consolation, that we will remember the place of our efforts, but we'll always remember also that it only comes from Hashem ultimately and that we have to focus on that and think about not what we decide Hashem wants, but what Hashem actually wants and use that as our guide. And we hope bringing about the full consolation and the full redemption. Thanks for joining us. We'll see you next week for our next discussion as we make our way from redemption to consolation, this time of how we react to times of trouble, next time being how we react to times of trouble and how they can bring us to a fuller salvation. Be well.